I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, the broadcast of Faker Others, and Glenn Moore of World Soccer. This was football as pure escapism, a brilliant three-hour league cup final incorporating an epic penalty shootout. It's inappropriate to speak of heroes in such circumstances when a nation is fighting for its existence but the occasion certainly provided a character reference for Quivine Kelleher, Liverpool's young goalkeeper. The manner of Liverpool's first domestic cup win for a decade was dramatic, but it couldn't be separated from the bigger picture. Now, you were at Wembley, Faye. It was a special afternoon and evening, wasn't it? It really was. The atmosphere was absolutely incredible from walking up Olympic Way and seeing the Chelsea and Liverpool fans there early. It was a much nicer atmosphere than the Euro 2020 final because they'd put in a no alcohol zone around. There was, you know, a, a very obvious increased police and, and stewarding presence as well. And then the dedications and support and show solidarity with Ukraine, with the arch being lit in blue and yellow, Ukrainian flags being brought in by supporters from both sets of clubs. It was it, it was something really special. And over 80,000, I think in the end it, it, it was, inside the stadium, some noise. It was spine-tingling at moments, absolutely incredible. Mm, um, it came down to a tale of two goalkeepers, didn't it, Glenn? It did. I mean, you could not really script it, could you? I mean, uh, 120 minutes of missed chances and 21 successful penalties. Uh, then the keeper is brought on for pens, fouls to save any, and then skies his own. And, of course, looking back to his previous history with this final, having refused to come off for a penalty shootout before, it certainly was, you know, in a way of forgetting everything else going on in the world for a few hours, and particularly as he built up to that crescendo. Yeah, yeah, I noticed in the programme um, there was a, a, a double-page spread on Kepper with the uh, headline Shootout Saviour, which probably was tempting fate, wasn't it? What struck me, Faye, was the, the team ethic of Liverpool, almost team spirit, and that was probably emphasised by uh, Jordan Henderson handing Kelleher the trophy and basically pushing him towards the photographers. That tells you what's going on at that football club, doesn't it? Well, it tells you everything you need to know about Jordan Henderson as well. And he will remember that 10 years ago, when they beat Cardiff on penalties in 2012, he was only 21 years old. He was that young player who needed somebody to guide him and and show him the way and make sure that 
his performances were, were given the credit that they deserve and that's certainly what he has developed into leadership wise himself he brings those you know that the sign of the best kind of leader is somebody who picks up others brings them up and sticks them on their shoulders and doesn't try to squash them down and, and take the limelight themselves and that's exactly what Jordan Henderson does in in my eyes and you know the club are very very lucky to have him for sure and Quivine Kelleher in in particular that was his moment it wasn't Jordan Henderson as captain it wasn't his moment it was Quivine Kelleher's moment and that's exactly what he did by doing that Mm. It's a funny game though, isn't it? I mean, a goalkeeper fails to save any of 10 penalties but still ends up the hero because he scores one. Yeah, yeah, but the, equally they were all absolutely brilliant penalties, bar maybe one or two. Mm. Um, but also, you know, we're in a second-guessing phase here, aren't we, as well, Glenn? You know, Thomas Tuchel, you know, with hindsight, he was obviously wrong to substitute Edouard Mundy, who'd actually, you know, if we lest we forget, had helped Senegal win, you know, the African Cup of Nations on penalties. Do you think this might end the the fashion for subbing goalkeepers on for the for the shootout, or perhaps strikers as well? But um, I mean, it worked in the Super Cup, although he, he what he saved two out of seven then I think, and it did, did work then. So you can sort of see, you can see the logic. I think Van Aal was the first to do it, wasn't he, when he brought in Cruel uh, in the um, in the World Cup and. The first time you do it, it does, I think it does have an impact on the other side and they're thinking, oh, this guy must be a real specialist. I think that loses some effect after a while. And also, if you're taking a penalty, are you going to be that more unnerved having Kepa there than you would having Mendy there, given the, the form he'd been in during the game? You come into the game you know, cold and with all the gamesmanship and stuff, he didn't really seem to get very far in, in, in terms of the, putting Liverpool off or, or stopping them scoring. This is what I don't understand about it, Glenn. I, I find it really difficult. Like, clearly, when you looked at Mendy coming off, he he knew he was coming off. He behaved very professionally, hugged Kepper, wished him luck, shook his manager's hand, you know, dealt with very classily, I thought, which means that it had been pre-planned. However, there has to be, in a game like that, where your goalkeeper has played like that, and that double save was world-class, absolutely outstanding. Many other saves as well to, to, to keep Chelsea in the game. You you change your mind on that, I would say. And as you say, he, he rescued Senegal in, in a penalty shoot. I just, I just don't get it. I just think in-game management is really key. We talked a lot when I was on air yesterday about ripping up the script and these kind of finals, you can't have a script. But Thomas Tuchel had already decided his script and stuck with it. And I just, I just think on the, on the balance of play, on the performance that Edouard Mendy had given, absolutely he should have been on there for that penalty shootout. Absolutely. And and speaking of scripts, it does seem, Glenn, that this weekend almost a bigger script is being written. You know, we've seen fans and players seizing the initiative from, you know, conventional, hierarchical, some would say very cynical global governing bodies. England, they're refusing, they're now refusing to play Russia at any level for the foreseeable future. Is this the moment that, that sport in general and football in particular found its voice and used its collective influence? Yes, I think there's more awareness of that. I mean, 
I mean, I, I do a bit of teaching uh, sports journalism on the side, and one of the early classes I do is, you know, what is sports journalism? You know, it's, and people from the outside might think it's just, you know, making goals, runs on wickets, tries, you know, and then I, you know, bring up a series of photographs, things like Hillsborough, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, Colin Kaepernick, you know, the Dublin right in 95, Djokovic being deported. I mean, there's constant more stories. I mean, you could go right back to the Nazi salute in 36. It's always been about more than just sport. The idea you can keep sport and politics separate is complete rubbish. Yeah, sport is, I mean, what was it? Orwell called it war without shooting. I don't think that's quite right, but it is certainly an extension of geopolitics, particularly the modern age of sport washing and, and so on. And, yeah. and you can see that in the way Russia have been behaving in terms of getting very heavily ingrained in getting big major sporting events. Indeed, with China, similar, similar hosting those events. So then you get a situation where that's all being run from the top. And now... Fans and the public generally are expressing their voice. And people say, well, does that make any difference? Well, I think it does make a difference because what you see is that, you know, you look at those massive protests in Berlin and around the world this weekend. And so what that passed, that message it passes on upwards to the people who are making the decisions, to politicians, is there is massive public support for, you know, something to happen. And again, within football, you get that upward pressure. And in, in an era of more populist politicians, even in the West, you are in a situation whereby it's quite difficult to reject the public mood when it's so clearly, you you know, pretty much unanimous on, on a subject as big as this. So you have to, you know, you go with the flow. I mean, we saw this, you know, in a much smaller way with Boris Johnson's uh, vault face on the European Super League. Yeah, and suddenly uh, you get the way the wind's going and it completely changes the way he was viewing it. And, and a subject as big as this, so you do get that whole, and the fact that it's sort of right across Europe, Western Europe and, and Central Europe and that, that sort of groundswell, it's going to make people at the top, you have to, to retain your legit, legitimacy, you have to go, go with that mood. And I wouldn't be at all surprised, to be honest with me, FIFA being obviously hopeless, Infantino is completely uh, conflicted, but I wouldn't be surprised if between us recording this and this go this podcast going out, FIFA have changed their change the stance in, in a significant way because it's going to be quite difficult for them to remain a legitimate organiser of, of the game when almost the entire game is against them. Yeah, well, when you think about it, it's absurd to say, well, or for the, even for them to think they can get away, FIFA can get away, with trying to, well, weakly emulate the IOC by saying, well, OK, we'll just call them the Football Union of Russia. Well, that's absurd. When you look at this, Faye, what are the broader implications? FIFA's credibility is at stake. Is there a potential for a boycott of Qatar if they allow Russia to qualify by default? Wow, yeah, potentially. In terms of Qatar, though, I thought Russia aren't allowed to... that that They're under a different name because of the anti-doping violations. So... This is it. Yeah, I mean, what FIFA it's semantics, though, isn't it? Anyway. Yeah, but what FIFA yeah, doing okay. isn't actually any development. But in, in, terms of that, you should, you know, in terms of just pure... You know, the sporting integrity, you cannot have Russia basically being given a free pass into football's major tournament simply because people will not play them out of conscience. Yeah, and I think the, the, the Poland FA in particular absolutely were, were vehement with what they thought on it. Obviously, they're due to play them in, in World Cup qualifying. They thought it was totally unacceptable but th- this was the most interesting thing. We're not interested in participating in this game of appearances because that's exactly what it is. It's a game of appearances. I'm really pleased that the FA have come out very strongly on this and refused to do it. And yeah, they, they could, you know, a- as it is, there there was uproar about 
with the World Cup being awarded to Qatar in the first place, if you then allow Russia in, in whatever guise it is that, that, that they're going to be playing in, but essentially are Russia, it, it, there's something really dark behind mm. that. And Gianni Infantino is not covering himself in glory at the moment. It's just words coming out and, and, and condemning lightly, I would say, the invasion of Ukraine. Something else has to be done. And if that means that national federations have to potentially boycott, FIFA are going to have to do something about it. And at the moment, I can see people coming together and doing exactly that because they have to force FIFA's hand. And that's where FIFA have a real problem because they shouldn't need people to be forcing their hand. They should be making these decisions themselves and showing really strong leadership. And they're absolutely not doing that. Yeah, I think to pick up on your point, Mike, I mean, I think because of the questions around Qatar staging, you know, how how they won it very controversially, all the um, the the way they said the building the stadiums, the, the deaths of the, uh, the so many hundreds of labourers in it, uh, they're all, and also the timing of it in the middle of the, the European football season means it's already more vulnerable than the ordinary World Cup would be. Add in the power struggle between UEFA and FIFA and the, you know, the considerable dissatisfaction with FIFA, the way FIFA's been run, the new alliance between UEFA and Bowl in South America, you could see in extreme circumstances, this is one World Cup where you could get UEFA and Combo say, well, we're not going. And let's be honest, if you take the European South American teams out of it, it's not going to be much of a World Cup. And yeah, it wouldn't be difficult for Western Europe to stay, say, well, we're staging in Europe. I mean, they've got plenty of stadia, plenty of know-how. I mean, and they basically, they push it back to the following summer, obviously, and you know, keep the football, the Western football season as it, as it is. So you could see that happening. That would basically be the, the breakup of FIFA and there'd be a whole new world order in football. Mm. Well, some would say that's over, overdue. Mm. But also, you know, isn't fate, doesn't this put pressure on, or certainly the FA stance, doesn't that put pressure on UEFA? to exclude Russia from the women's Euros this summer. Yeah, absolutely it does. You know, I find it bizarre anyway that UEFA aren't seen as a so-called major player, which means that they're not... Russia aren't subjected to the same anti-doping violation breaches as as, as they are elsewhere. I, I, that, that in itself is bizarre, but in any guise, they, they shouldn't be, that's for sure. Russia is supposed to be facing Switzerland, Netherlands and Sweden in their group. There's some problems there, quite clearly. Alexander Zeferin, I think, needs to show some really strong leadership where Gianni Infantino is not. And the Women's Euros is the perfect opportunity to do that going forward. They, they can't compete. England would meet them in the semi-finals of, of the tournament. And the FA have said they refuse to play them. So... You know, again, and this is a home. This is a home tournament. We need UEFA to be making a real stand on on this because otherwise, it's going to be embarrassing all round. I mean, the, the simple way to do it is obviously if Liz Truss comes out and says they won't be allowed visas to come in anyway. Yeah, that that, that makes it obviously so, it's, it's much simpler if UEFA make the decision first. So, and Russia knocked out Portugal in the playoffs, so it's a fairly simple uh, substitution in that respect. It's not a particularly complicated manoeuvre to bring in another team. Mm. Yeah, speaking of complicated. You know, we have to address the issue of, of Chelsea's ownership, you know, Faye. We, Roman Abramovich has, has given up what he called, or his statement called, stewardship and care of the club to a charitable board of trustees. Those trustees are, are, are saying, well, they're not committed to it yet. Legal comment on Sunday suggested that 
stewardship has no meaning in law. So is it fair for us to ask, do you think, that essentially, or ask, has anything essentially changed at Chelsea? I don't think so, no. It's just on the face of it and the timing of it as well, the night before the the League Cup final, I think, is, is quite key because it was clearly done to to take any kind of pressure and uh, scrutiny off of off of Chelsea going into a major final. You know, he's still he's not selling the club. This is this is a very different thing. He's still going to be the owner of the club. You know, they they might turn it down. By the way, the trustees they mm. might decide not to take it, and then there's a whole different you know argument. Look, I, I'm not. I, I'm not not intelligent enough, honestly, to, to to fully understand all the ramifications in terms of money and everything else involved. But I think somewhere here there is a a worry of assets being seized and money being trapped, and so they're trying to find ways of doing it. If we look at the the broader picture, Glenn. You know, the essence of sports washing is almost an exploitation of loyalty towards a club or an institution. Again, is that theory now under, un, well, it's under scrutiny, but is it also under pressure? Well, it, it's quite interesting to see you know, how many Chelsea fans, you know, with Ukraine flags and so on. I mean, it wasn't, the, the, the sense before the game, this could be an exercise in Liverpool baiting Chelsea for their Russian connections. Yeah, uh, but at the game, it was clearly yeah, a large united feel in support of Ukraine. So it's a, a, and that situation, that concern never materialised in, in general, which is quite interesting because, as you know, we'll all be aware, yeah, there's been a lot of pushback at clubs involved in sports washing from you know a committed section, section of the fan base that any criticism of the owners is therefore criticism of the club, which isn't necessarily the case. And we've seen in the past, you know, it is weaponising the um, the fan base. I mean, yeah, we are talking about minority here, but quite a large and vociferous minority at, at, at those clubs. So, yeah, this has been a big test of it. Um, invading the country in the way that Russia invaded Ukraine and bring it into our living rooms on TV is, is clearly a much more obvious and high-profile form of intrusion into sort of life than some of the sports, some of the behaviour of other owners of other clubs. So clearly get a more determined reaction. But it does, it will, it will um, maybe move the, need, the needle a bit. Yeah. Well, I suppose, Faye, in, in football terms, in other circumstances, probably the first thing we'd have spoken about today was perhaps the most poignant event of the weekend, Marcello Bielsa leaving Leeds. You know, to quote that karaoke favourite, he did it his way, didn't he? <laughs> he certainly did, and he wasn't going to uh, going to change his way, unfortunately. And look, I, I spoke to lots of Leeds fans on Saturday evening when the news broke, first and foremost, and they are gutted, absolutely gutted. Some of them even saying that they would rather have gone down and kept Marcelo Bielsa in charge, which I find. You know, bearing in mind it took them 16 years to get back up to the Premier League, I find that incredible. But what the man has done within the community of West Yorkshire and Leeds, I, 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 that's what's touched very many people. The fact that he's brought exciting football, a, a wonderful brand of football back to them, although slightly kamikaze. And, uh, mm. and you know, ultimately they, they were only heading one way with that kind of football at the time. 
always important to add they have been absolutely decimated by injuries. But unfortunately, Marcelo Bielsa's brand of football, he only wants a small squad to, to, to feature and, and be a very tight-knit unit. When that small squad then gets really crucial injuries, like what happened with Patrick Bamford and, and Calvin Phillips and Liam Cooper, you're when you don't have decent enough reinforcements, that's going to cause you all kinds of problems. And unfortunately, I, I think Andrea Radizzani didn't really have any choice, much as he said himself. It's you know the most difficult decision he's had to make. Yeah, I suppose. You know, again, there's a there's a almost a symbolism in this, isn't there, Glenn? Where it does ask the question: Is there room for the romance a coach like Bielsa represents? He's obviously a, you know, self-evidently a very decent man, and a, a challenging coach, an innovative coach. Yet the goodwill towards him can only stretch so far before results take over. Yes, it's a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, because as Faye says, that the, the injuries, I mean, you've lost a spine of the team for, for large parts of the season. I don't think that, I mean, they haven't spent particularly heavily or, or successfully for that matter in the transfer market of the, since, since being promoted as a, as a newly promoted club. So there's still quite a few players there who were there in the championship season. I mean, I'm wondering whether another coach would have actually, if you put another coach in there, would Leeds be in the same position given the resources that Bielsa has got? as they are now. And the answer is probably that they might well be. I mean, last year they sort of overperformed a bit, you could argue, with the players they've got, as newly promoted teams often do. That, of course, raises expectations. There's nothing more damaging to a manager than raised expectations because you're clearly expected to perform it again and again and keep raising those expectations. So I do wonder whether, yeah, if the, if they've made the change, I mean, there's an argument maybe she left at the end of last season, but would a new manager actually have achieved better results over the course of the season? I mean, clearly at the moment, they're shipping lots of goals and momentum is bad. And, you know, until without knowing how quickly some of those players are going to come back, yeah, maybe a change of face, a change of, you know, direction a little bit. I mean, Jesse March looks like he's a man in pole position. He plays a similar sort of brand of football in terms of quite high tempo, lots of pressing, but, yeah, more, you know, less of the man-to-man marking and maybe a bit more organised at the back. Yeah, if you can stop shipping the goals, clearly you can maybe pick up a couple of results and, and change the momentum. So it is one of those situations, as you so often get in football, where it would be great if you could just say, look, have a break for a couple of months. We'll get something just to sort of, yeah, sort of mend, the, mend the dike <laughs> and then come back because you're the manager we really want. And you're, the, you're the guy we really want in terms of the fans we want. So it's it's sad. It's, it's a sad change. And, yeah, to be to be fired when the team have never been in the bottom three or four, yeah, I mean, I know they're sort of heading that general direction, but by no means guaranteed to go down. Of course, there is a sense that maybe the players look a bit knackered. These intensive training sessions aren't really helping with a small squad with injuries. But it is quite sad, and uh, he obviously leads with the good wishes of many Leeds fans. He's going to be quite difficult for whoever comes in and replaces him. Yeah, well, the club statement's talking about planning for a permanent tribute to him at Ellen Road. With you know, We've talked about, well, we're going to talk about Jesse Marsh, Faye, his background in the Red Bull stable, you know, latterly at Leipzig. Does he have time to turn it around? And will he be helped by the fallibility of other teams? I mean, yes, definitely helped by the fallibility of other teams, I would say. I think this season it's going to be the lowest points total ever for, for teams to, to stay up, I would I would say. He's going to face exactly the same problems that Marcelo Bielsa has faced in terms of players not being available through injury 
However, do you know what? I just don't know because I think a lot of those players were so supportive of what Marcelo Bielsa was doing. It's going to be a bit of a sucker punch losing him. At the same time, perhaps they were thinking they needed a change, regardless of of the esteem that they held Marcelo Bielsa in. Maybe they thought, actually, do you know what? We, we've we got to stop doing this. And as we've seen before, the new manager bounce is, is usually very important. But it takes a few games for that to 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 happen sometimes. I, I just I just don't know. I don't know enough about Jesse Marsh to be able to to say yes, one hundred percent. He's the right person to come in and and stabilise things for for Leeds United. He's a young manager. That's going to be a very very different approach, perhaps than than, than Bielsa has had. There's always been criticisms of of the punishing training schedule that that the players have had. Maybe they do need a little bit of a of a rest, and somebody else's style will just shake things up a little bit. Yeah, well, if you look at it, Glenn, he will certainly be under immediate pressure if Burnley win the first of their two games in hand against Leicester at Turf Moor on Tuesday, won't he? Yes, he will. I mean. Um... I think this has concentrated quite a few minds. The fact that you know, the, the bottom clubs have shown quite large signs of life. I mean, Burnley, obviously Newcastle in particular, but you know, Watford are picking up better performances. I know they've not picked up that many points since the change of manager. And Norwich have put a couple of wins together. And I mean, those two still look as if they're most likely to go down. But there have been, <clears throat> in all the, you know, we're now looking at three from sort of seven maybe six if Newcastle look like they're getting away with it, whereas it was three from four, so it's drawn other clubs into it. And that obviously is going to concentrate the minds of the people above it. And um, Burnley are now looking like they've built a bit of momentum. They've got a lot of know-how. Vecors, I think, has been an excellent signing. That They they are looking at a bit of confidence. And they're playing a Leicester team who are struggling for confidence. Yes, yeah, certainly. Do you still think, looking at the relegation issue, Faye, that it's one extra plus Watford and Norwich, and that extra could well be Brentford. Yeah, it certainly could be, but they've got two key fixtures coming up, Mike, which could change everything. They face Norwich this weekend and then Burnley the weekend after, and then they've got a really tough run with Leicester, Chelsea and West Ham. If they can get six points from these two games coming up, then they've got all the chances to stay up because we've seen what Thomas Frank's side can do. We, we know the quality that, that that they have. I would say see what they get out of these next two matches and then assess where where they are. On to other matters, Glenn. The FA Cup you know, is being shoehorned into a into this midweek, uh, the fifth round. Does the competition lose something by that? Do you think? Well, I must admit, I was I'm a big fan of the FA Cup and was initially against it. But you could argue that, I mean, the Champions League is played in midweek and it doesn't seem to do any problems in terms of the attention the Champions League get. I mean, maybe, I mean, now it's spread out across the weekend in such a sporadic way, all across four days when it is on the weekend. Maybe having it in midweek away from some of the other distractions might help it. I mean, personally, I think the big blow has been a loss of replays and it's difficult to see whether, whether they'll come back. But I do think it's been a big blow. I mean, we could have had a situation, you know, those two games recently. I mean, Plymouth would have been looking at take, taking Chelsea back to the West Country. Kidderminster would have been looking to play, forward to playing at the London Stadium if you had, you know, the 90-minute finish and then straight into a replay. For financial and uh, you know, sort of other reasons, I think they were lost to the smaller clubs. You know, something else sacrificed on the altar of the Premier League. 
In terms of mid, uh, playing the, mid, mid, the midweek, I mean, it's quite a nice spread. You know, February, not much not much going on socially, freezing cold, me three nights in front of the TV watching the FA Cup. Um, <laughs> it, it might develop a bit of momentum, a bit of a place, I guess. It's, it is slightly, it does feel like the competition is being like, as you say, shoehorned and uh, um, squeezed in here and there when they can get it done. I mean, on a similar subject, I mean, the, the much more at risk, of course, is the League Cup, which for almost as long as we've been in the game, people have been saying we need to get rid of it. I mean, Sunday was a good example of how there is a place for this competition. I mean, not only is it it's a big income generator for football league clubs, uh, you know, the big clubs, when they get into the latter stages, they want to win it and the fans want to win it. Yeah, you know, we, we do need to find a way of keeping these competitions in. There the, the are fewer and fewer teams winning all the trophies. Now, admittedly, obviously, Liverpool, you would count in, in that category of teams that win most of the trophies. But it does, you know, the more opportunities there are for fans to enjoy a day at Wembley and win things, the better. Mm. Well, it certainly is. There's going to be a um, you know a full house at the Riverside on Tuesday, Middlesbrough at home to Spurs. Their home form under Chris Wilder has been exceptional. They might have only picked up one point in the last four away games. That just shows what a good manager Chris Wilder is, doesn't it? He's an excellent manager, but we've always we've always known that, haven't we? And what he's been able to do at Middlesbrough it, it is absolutely fantastic. So, Glenn, you know, what, what he's done there is also sort of well together, really promising prospects on loan, you know, Connolly from Brighton, Balogun from Arsenal, and you've got some players there who are championship players with Premier League potential, Paddy McNair, Dale Fry. They're the sort of team who could cause an upset, aren't they? They are, and he's built on you know some sort of... Um... Clearing out that Neil Warnock uh, uh, did in his period there in terms of you know trying to rebuild the team for another push at promotion and promotion is obviously the main aim for for uh, Middlesbrough, so it will be interesting to see in a way what side he picks because clearly I mean getting up and getting back in the Premier League is the key thing. I'm sticking my neck out a bit here, but I actually think Spurs will be fine. Their waveform is, is isn't bad. They're well set up for a game against a team like Middlesbrough who are going to come at them home with the pressure of the crowd. And you, you can, if assuming that Conte plays a strong side and. To be quite honest, Spurs should be looking at when at the FA Cup as a potential trophy, given they were, how they're failing in the they failed a bit in the league. This is a real opportunity to, to land a rare piece of silverware in some respects. I mean, if you go, you've got Kane and Son, and I very much like the look of Kulusevski. Yeah, you can see them picking a team like Middlesbrough off on the break away from home as they commit forward. This will probably be prove to be a very bad prediction, but I think they'll be fine here. <laughs> you, you never quite know what you're getting with Spurs, obviously. Yeah, it's it's been a bit of a psychodrama there, hasn't it, Faye, over the last few weeks? It really has. I was up at the Etihad Stadium for um, their win over Manchester City and the scenes. And then all of a sudden you go, they go up to Turf Moor and Antonio Conte throws his toys out the pram and gives a very emotional, emotionally driven interview and, and it's turned all back on its head again. It's like that they literally, they are a roller coaster team. I always thought I supported the the, <laughs> the biggest roller coaster team there was in in Luton Town, but oh my goodness, Tottenham Hotspur! I interviewed Kulishevsky, so young but real mature head on his shoulders, took everything in his stride, including you know his first start, first goal. He he's he's great, and I do think once Conte kind of 
gets hold of this team and starts giving them a little bit of more belief and a little bit more confidence that, that they'll be absolutely fine. When he adds the players he wants to bring in, etc., they'll be fine. I, I agree with, with Glenn that Spurs will be fine against Middlesbrough, but then this is the FA Cup and actually I love a shock and I'm like, no offence to Spurs fans. I'd love Borough to do that, but they, listen, they're going to have their focus on the championship just like Luton Town are and that, that's really, that's, that's key. Okay, well, you can enlighten us about Luton in a couple of minutes. Uh, I, just wanted, uh, uh, I, I wanted, wanted to get in there early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Luton, Glenn, you know, they are on a great run. Uh, they're playing Chelsea, who, you know, to be fair, dealt with the emotions of that final, the League Cup final very well. What sort of Chelsea team will turn up, do you think? I'm assuming they'll pick a decent, strong side. I mean, they've got quite a lot of fixtures, but I mean, they've got a very strong squad. It's never going to be easy to come back from losing a cup final, particularly a cup final quite so draining and emotional as that. You're going to need a couple of days to sort of pick it up. But freshen up, bring in some different players. Yeah, they've got lots of good young players there at Chelsea. So whichever 11 he picks is going to be a, a good, strong side. So you would say... But again, it's like there's other... You know, like we said about Miserable, I mean... What team are Luton going to pick? I mean, do you go for the glory? I mean, it's going to be a difficult place to play. You've got to Kenilworth Road for the game like that. But do you go for the glory or do you think, well, we've actually got a chance to get in the Premier League here, which is clearly the driver. I mean, Cup Glory is great, but the league is what managers are, you know, keep and get their jobs on. So it's a, it's a difficult selection thing for them. And, and obviously, I mean, uh, their depth won't be as good as Chelsea's. If both sides put out, weak, quotes, weakened sides, Chelsea's would be much stronger. But there is an opportunity there for Luton. Yeah. Well, they do have a you know a key championship game on uh, on the Saturday against Middlesbrough. Funnily enough, so Faye, for a neutral, who should they look for in this Luton team? Well, it depends who Nathan Jones decides to to, to go with. Did you see that we have signed Robert Snodgrass, by the way? Uh, yes, mid, yeah. midweek, which just shows our intention. And I know that Nathan Jones was at Wembley yesterday with an eye on Chelsea. I'm sure he'll have been delighted that. Um, uh, so many players had to be brought off the bench and, and played and that they went to extra time and then penalties. Emotionally draining as well for them. Super Danny Hilton on the score sheet at the weekend against Derby. He's brilliant when he comes on as a substitute appearance and, and you know, can can cause real problems. But we, we've got a fantastic team this this season in terms of a collective and great options from from the bench as well Harry Cornick having a cracking season we, we've just got quality all around the pitch and defensively solid which you know has perhaps been a question mark over us in the past and an excellent in midfield too and in fact you know we're into the playoffs at the moment we're sixth in the championship and I think that's that's punching above the weight that many people thought we were and I, I think we can cause Chelsea some real problems Looking elsewhere, Glenn, and, and also following up that theme of, of squad depth, Liverpool, you know, let's be honest, they're, they're likely to roll over Norwich, aren't they, despite likely rotation? Yeah, I mean, Liverpool got a fantastic record against Norwich in recent years. I also think Norwich also have a, a bigger issues. I mean, Norwich aren't looking at this competition thinking we can win it. So I, I suspect Liverpool ought to win that one relatively comfortably against what I suspect might be a weak Norwich side. Equally, I mean, Man City should win. Peterborough, and I think Everton will, should comfortably dismiss Bournemouth. I mean, they're at home and Bournemouth are no longer... They've had a couple of defeats since the Bournemouth game. So therefore, it's not quite that 
great run they were on. One or two interesting ones. I was at um, Bournemouth on Saturday, funnily enough, to see them play Stoke. And Stoke, were, Stoke for a team that had been on a bit of a middling run, were very impressive until, uh, and were dominant, certainly in charge of the game until they had a player sent off. And then they defended superbly against wave after wave of attack. I mean, great to see Phil Jagielka still marshalling defences at the grand old age that he is only to be undone with two late goals by Bournemouth, uh, which would have been terribly difficult for him to take after such a performance in 10 men. And you wonder whether that would be a bit of a hangover from that because Palace obviously have hit a bit of decent form. So that might not be too easy for them. But um, you would have to say, look at their cup. Man City, Chelsea, Liverpool have to be favourites as always, but there will be one or two teams like Southampton, like Spurs, like West Ham thinking, yo, this could be the opportunity here. Yeah, they're getting quite close now. Mm. With Liverpool, obviously you saw them yesterday, Faye. How significant do you think it was Jurgen Klopp showing faith in Harvey Elliott, who actually wasn't initially in the matchday squad, was he? He wasn't. He wasn't at all. That's only because Thiago Alcantara pulled up in the in the warm-up and was replaced by Naby Keita. So Harvey, Harvey Elliott ended up being brought onto the bench. And, I mean, t- to be honest, I thought he was like... He went in with a push on uh, Antonio Rudiger at one point. <laughs> I thought, that's a little bit of a mismatch. I wouldn't do that. I also thought there was a, almost a, a Steve Morrow moment. Uh, he jumped on someone's shoulders in the celebration and then did not quite land on them as he should have done. And I thought he was going <laughs> down, but uh, he didn't. But what a talent that boy is, and particularly at 18 years of age, coming back from the injury that, that he suffered and then getting the opportunity to make his mark on a on a League Cup final, uh, take a bow, young man. It was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, need some nerve to take a penalty in those circumstances oh, yeah. when you're 18. Yeah, he's um, been very good, Klopp, the way he's, he's brought these young players in. You know, it, it's not easy to bring young players into a side that play at such a high level and, and trust them in big games. I mean, Elliot, Curtis Jones, yeah, players like that. It's, it's been very good the way he's brought them in. Yeah, yeah, and he he also said Klopp, you know, it, it, and it's and, and that again is, is very good because I know he's been criticised in the past for the way he approaches domestic trophies, but he said that this was a win for for the whole club and that they would celebrate with the academy and to make the academy feel part of that, that's only going to improve Liverpool going forward because he's going to bring those next generation up and up and they'll have felt that togetherness for, from, from winning that and the fact that they were given a nod and respected, trusted to to play in the early rounds of, of the tournament and then, you know, included in the celebrations. It's really important. I mean, mm. it is, I mean, more generally, I mean, um, lots of good young players at Arsenal, Chelsea, uh, City. I mean, there are... Managers are giving opportunities to, to, to good young players, many of whom are English, and showing some faith in them. I mean, I suppose in some respects, that, it helps having those extra games in things like the, the, the League Cup because you, it is a way where you give them their first sort of experiences. Um, but there has been yeah, some, some, some good management in recent years in terms of giving those players a chance and some really excellent talent coming through. Mm. You know, Southampton yeah, have you know, been traditionally pilfered, haven't they, by by bigger clubs. You know, I'm, I'm looking at you, Liverpool, here. Are they the sort of team who could win the Cup? You know, they've got West Ham on Wednesday, which is obviously a, a pivotal game in their season. What do you make of um, Ralph Hasenhutl and what he's been doing there, Faye? 
I love Ralph Hasenhutl. For a manager to have been on the brink so many times in his career and, and question marks over over his tactics and, and whether he had a place as a manager there and, and to come back and, and, and do what he's done, I absolutely agree with you. They, they could do something special in the Cup and they would certainly deserve it as well based on their performances. Their home form is absolutely incredible as well at the moment. Ten unbeaten at home at the moment. Eleven, actually, if you include Norwich on on Friday, of course. Um, they're doing really good things and they're doing it, you know, in, in a classy way and very much going under the radar. And, of course, they reached the semi-final last year, which is slightly forgotten about in the sort of... Because Leicester went on to win it, which is a bit of a turn-up, even though Leicester are, are relatively recent Premier League champions. What about West Ham, Glenn? They're two points behind Manchester United in fifth in the Premier League. They beat Wolves, who seem to be losing a bit of their momentum. Again, is this the sort of competition that a manager like David Moyes can get some due reward? It is. I do think that still in Europe and still chasing a top four place, this isn't is going to be nowhere near his list of priorities. I mean, will, for example, Mikel Antonio play, given his fitness is sometimes, given his value to the team and the fact that he has had a few injuries. But you take him out of the team and, you know, you make quite a significant weakness. So I do wonder, given the fact West Ham have a relatively thin squad and the importance of the other competitions, you know, how seriously that they, they would take this match, particularly away from home against a, an informed team. However, if you get through this game, and obviously it's only nine, you know, if it's quite possible, so it's, it's decided on the day, then you're into a stage where you're pretty close to it's Wembley and, you know, you're a good side. I mean, I think for all those teams, you hope that somebody knocks out Manchester City and Liverpool by the time you get to Wembley, if you get to Wembley. Mm. Everton will complete the FA Cup by being at home to Boreham Wood on Thursday. By that time, they could conceivably be in the relegation zone by then. How real is the threat, do you think? I think it's a real threat. But having seen them against Manchester City on Saturday night, I think you can already tell that Frank Lampard has, has is starting to make his mark on this team. They certainly seemed more confident. The goal that they conceded was a bit of a mess defensively and then they were very, very unlucky not to be awarded a penalty. I, I believe it was a penalty. I know that we're going to speak about VAR. I really wish we didn't have to speak about VAR. <laughs> but, you know, they, they would have well deserved a point for sure. And I think most Manchester City fans would admit that as well. I thought they played really well uh, against City. On that performance, I feel like they've got more than enough to stay up. On the squad they have, they've got more than enough to stay up. But they've really got to start putting some points on the board at the moment because they're in a precarious situation. And as we know, football is a confidence game a lot of the time. And, you know, much as so many players and managers say they don't look at the table, they will know they're only a point above the relegation places. They know that. That is where their metal is going to be tested. Yeah, with the exception of the Southampton game, performances have definitely improved under Lampard, but results so far haven't. So um, points do need to be acquired. Yeah. Glenn, before we go on to that VAR debate that probably we all dread secretly, just one point I want to make about a broader issue in terms of what is the point of keeping a, a linesman, keeping the flag down when 
it is obviously offside. We had that yesterday, and I, I looked at Trent Alexander-Arnold sprinting back, and I thought he could quite easily ping his hamstring here. What is the point of that? It, someone's going to get injured, aren't they? Well, they are. I mean, I'm never convinced about these someone's going to get injured argument because people get injured all the time and they get injured all the time in training. But, I mean, Van Dyke made the point that they're making lots of unnecessary running. After the game yesterday, he, he, he moaned about that. I mean, um, when he was asked about VAR, he, he actually turned it on to the question about the flags, you know, staying down when you're, you're making all this unnecessary work. And, yeah, there, there are times when someone's obviously offside. I mean, put your flag up. Uh, like the linesmen, well, the um, assistant referees, as we're supposed to be called these days, they're pretty good, actually. In the days before VR, they, they got most calls right, so they're pretty good. And now it's like, almost like they've been sort of stood down. You just said to sort of make sure you take the throw in, at least within 10 yards of where you're supposed to take the throw in for. So it must be quite frustrating for them in some respects. But, yeah, I mean, you're going to get... I think they should be flagging earlier and more often. There is always a risk that you start getting that grey area where they do end up missing one or two. You get two players moving at high speed in different directions. But as a general rule, most of these offsides are pretty obvious and they certainly should be flagging a bit earlier for some of them. Referee does seem to be in, maybe crisis is too strong a word, but it's, it's, it's still struggling to work out how to deal with the new technology. that They've got the tools at their disposal and the philosophy around it. And we'll come on to that, obviously. Yeah, well, that again, you know, what is the point of VAR if it facilitates the sort of injustices that you mentioned, Faye, uh, uh, as the denial of that penalty for Everton against Manchester City? I just want to get your comment on Frank Lampard's comment where he said, look, it's incompetence at best, at worst, who knows? Now, when you've got a manager speaking in those terms, okay, in the heat at the moment, how significant is it? I think it's significant, but it. I find it. I find it difficult. So I do a phone in on a Saturday night, and I, I always have to provide the balance because, more often than not, ex-players say exactly the same thing, and I think it's very dangerous because you're questioning, referees' professionalism, and, you know, anybody who has their professionalism questioned and doesn't have a right to reply which I, I do believe should change by the way and, and I wonder whether the PGMOL might start to to release some statements that would take the heat off them a little bit and, and explain some decision making or perhaps even just hold their hands up sometimes and admit they're human and they made a mistake because actually I think a lot of people would respect that just as much I do think it's very uncomfortable and difficult when managers come out and question the integrity of referees and suggest that there's something more sinister at play that's very difficult they have a voice they have a responsibility as well that these people are doing their jobs however they're not doing themselves any favours, as you say, because there are some poor decisions being made regularly. And it means that we don't talk about the good decisions that are made regularly. You know, prime example yesterday with, with Lukaku's goal. We looked at it on so many... The lines didn't make sense. It's almost like they changed... So we're talking about this in the commentary box. It's almost like they decided to change the line of where Lukaku's arm was to make him offside in the same way they they looked at where Rodri's arm was for when the ball hit him. And they just this, oh, we need these to match. So I know that wasn't the case, but... Don't put us in a position where we have to debate this and question why the decision was made and, and have to think about another layer. 
Yeah, I think the, the thicker lines argument for offside is a good one. I mean, I thought the Lukaku one was very, very marginal. Given, given that it's almost like at what point you freeze the the pass, you change one frame, it's quite a big difference. I think mm. thicker lines are going, a, a, a wider margin of error would be obvious. The Everton decision was was ludicrous. I think it's unhelpful, Frank, suggesting that you know, it, intimating that a referee could be biased. I think that's definitely unhelpful. I could see why he was so furious about it. Uh, why Chris Cameron didn't at least say to the referee, have a look for yourself. I mean, he is the referee on the pitch. He could have been unsighted. Have a look for yourself and make the decision yourself. It's, I don't understand. Um, I mean, Mike Riley's having a disastrous couple of years and there needs to be complete change at the top of the refereeing system because there's lots of very good referees who appear to be operating a system where they don't quite know where they're coming or going. There's a, there's a lack of direction. When there is direction, it seems to be the wrong in the wrong direction. There needs to be a, a real reassessment of how things are done. Obviously, this is hard in the middle of the season, but, I mean, there needs to be a real change in the summer. Yeah, I think change has got to come. You know, just to sort of bring everything together, this weekend, for me at least, underlined the humanity of sports. The images were powerful and affecting. You know, just look around. Zinchenko tearfully embracing Mikolenko before that Everton-Manchester City game. Uh, Ralph Ranick and the Manchester United players posing with a peace banner before being spontaneously joined by the Watford team. You know, further afield, we've probably seen these clips on social media. Benfica's Ukrainian forward, Roman Yaramchuk, being reduced to tears by a standing ovation. All this tells you that football is a game played by and followed by people. It captures human nature, good and bad. We all make mistakes. Now, VAR, that supposed shortcut to perfection, makes them as well. So what's the point? I'll always struggle to see it. If you agree, please let me know. If you don't, please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Faye and Glenn for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast.